And this is his final letter, and as we'll see tonight, his dying letter. The letter of a man who knows it's, it's almost over, and a letter of a man who has a uh, borderline creepy degree of bravery, uh, knowing what's about to happen to him, probably uh, reflecting on what's already happened to him, um, after all, writing this from prison. And uh, there are times when Paul is afforded certain benefits because of his Roman citizenship, and then there are times where it's recorded that he doesn't he doesn't get treated as he should. And uh, I think that knowing how this story ends up, that shortly after writing this letter, Paul's head is removed from his body forcibly, um, I think we could safely say that his imprisonment wouldn't have been all that cushy and comfortable. And so that makes his words at the, uh, in the book of 2 Timothy um, altogether, but really in chapter 4, all the more amazing to me to reflect on what he's likely gone through to this point and what he's certainly about to go through. What he has to say is pretty astounding. Um, last week, Jim talked about the difference. He opened up with the difference between saints and sinners. Saints um, representing how we talk about the church, actually how the Bible talks about the church probably more than we do, Sinners, of course, talking about those who aren't in the family of God. And, and I thought his question was fascinating. Um, you know, he wanted, to, he wanted to see, do we talk about these two groups of people as if there is virtually little difference between them other than eternal destination? And uh, I, think, I think we do. And he pointed this out last week. I think we do talk about um, saints and sinners, Christians and unbelievers, as if they are effectively quite similar. And, uh, you know, I, I'm quite grateful for the, the work of the Reformers in the Protestant Reformation, 15th, 16th century Europe. I am very, very grateful um, for most of the ideals that came out of these movements, that formed the Protestant church and saw something in Roman Catholicism that was unhealthy and needed fixing. And uh, if we can't fix it from within, well, it's so important that we'll have to split. But I do think that there are some things that they overcorrected on. I don't know how many of you have had a real bad car wreck before. I have. Um, sliding off one side of the road, the it turns out the worst thing to do is to yank the car back onto the road because you're just going to go flying back across. And I think that in many ways that's what Martin Luther did. And he, he created this system, and, and he was rightfully attacking Roman Catholicism for its system it had created. It had built up over the years where it said that one is, in terms of being good with the church, and good with the church is synonymous with salvation. In terms of one possessing salvation, there are these steps that one has to take. There is this, this code that one has to live by. There is a, a lifestyle that has to be in place in order for these things to, to be true. And we have characterized that as a works-based righteousness. To some degree, that's accurate of Roman Catholicism at the time of the Reformation. To, to a lot of, I would say, in many ways, it's, it's in 
wrong, wrong characterization of what they were doing. Now, what happened is um, Martin Luther's concerns with the, uh, we'll just call it Rome, that's what, I mean, with the Pope and how the system was running from the Vatican, his concerns were then projected back in Scripture and placed at the feet of first century Judaism. And a lot of our negativity, we talked about this in the sermon a couple weeks ago when we were talking about Pharisees, a lot of our negativity towards first century Judaism is actually anger at Roman Catholicism projected back through history. Martin Luther looked at his, his cultural context and dragged that back into the scriptures. And we look at the Jews and we say, of course, they thought they could work themselves into heaven. But in fact, that is the furthest thing from the truth in Judaism. Judaism was as much based on grace as anything. They just thought that that grace was mediated through the Torah. And Jesus comes in and says that the Torah is null and void. Now that I'm here, grace comes through me. So it wasn't that they were graceless, that you could work your way into heaven. Now, we look, I think, I, I grew up being taught that you cannot work your way into heaven, that Judaism is a faulty system from the jump, and that works-based righteousness is altogether inappropriate. And so I learned that it's kind of weird to start talking about good behavior as if it's a virtue. Be careful lest you start sounding like a Pharisee. Now, build that up over years and years and years. At some point, I no longer have the ability to talk about myself as a saint because I'm so scared to talk about righteousness. I just really want to underline how bad I still am. And so I'll say, well, in the church, it's really, I have Jesus, so ultimately I'm good, but in all practicality, there's, you can't tell the difference between me, follower of Jesus, and this guy over here who doesn't love Jesus at all. And... Uh, I think that that is born out of inappropriate theology, born out of bad historical criticism, and born out of Martin Luther's overcorrection, and he's going on this side of the ditch, yanks the car back over and lands over here. In the end, we're still not going straight down the road. And I, I think that this, this bleeds into some questions that our text tonight will continue to answer because I'm sure I'm not the only one who struggled with this. How we live in the world, but not of the world. If you want to talk about the, like the theological catchphrase behind that is that saints um, both exist in the now and the not yet. The kingdom is both here now and it's not completely here. And so the saints reality is we're with God now, but we live among those who aren't with him. And so we're still kind of in the not yet. How do we live in the world, but not of it? Other ways of saying it are, um, we are citizens of heaven, just not yet residents. I'm, a, I'm an ambassador living in a foreign land, but this is not my home. Um, how do we um, bring the goodness of Christ to a world without catching their sickness? Other ways it's described. How do we go on living as um, a redeemed people, a kingdom of priests, as saints, the holy ones, when uh, I still struggle with sin, when depravity still runs rampant in this world, and doesn't it always seem to be getting worse? 
I can't imagine that it's technically getting worse. Um, it just has a new flavor every hundred years or so. But I ask this question, if Jesus calls us to be salt and light, if he calls us to have some sort of unique existence in a broken world, if he calls us to live out a now in a place that is filled with the not yet, how does that play out? How does that play out? And in his dying words to a man that he loves deeply, I think he helps us understand how that works. I think he does. You have here um, the first eight verses of chapter four, and these are some of the most, I think, beautiful words that the Apostle Paul wrote because as his last letter, after, um, I mean, the difference between this one and, say, the letter to Galatians or to uh, the first letter to the Thessalonian church, which one of those is his earliest letter. We're talking now nearing on 20 years of writing. Not quite 20, but nearly 20 years of writing to these churches that he's been all over the Mediterranean planting. And now to these church planters that he is now trained up and sent out. And uh, I went... Completely overboard. You may have looked through the notes and said, wow, Ryan is going to be taking us to a lot of other texts. I'm not, we don't have time. I'd love to do that. I, I really get a kick out of it. The people that are with me often on, say, Sundays or, um, or Tuesday mornings know how much I tend to take any passage of the Bible and find my way back into Isaiah somehow. Uh, I promise we're not going to go into Isaiah, although there is a reference in there for you. Um, it's not my fault. It's the fifth gospel, so get used to it. Um, but I put all of these references in here so that maybe you could later go in and, and trace them through. Because as Paul's dying letter, this is where he starts, you see this incredible man who serves a far more incredible God start to tie up all of these ideas that he has been declaring and insisting that people believe for years and years and years. You see, he's, at this point in his ministry, Paul has nothing new. This is one gigantic reminder of everything he's already said. And he says, I charge you. He's just finished his section on how useful and beautiful scripture is. He says, therefore, I charge you, Timothy, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, now, you're going to see Paul is going to lay it on thick here for a little bit. He is going to find the most solemn ideas, the heaviest events, the characteristics of God that carry the most weight. And he is going to affix them to what he's about to say. He is, he is saying, I am grasping for everything that can validate just how authoritatively I'm about to speak. And look at everything that he swears by. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus. It's not the first time he said that. He said that back in chapter 5 of 1 Timothy. And he says, Timothy, I want you to speak. I want you to proclaim the word and do so in a way that shows no partiality. He says, your opinion is irrelevant. Paul is going to spend the rest of, the, of 2 Timothy, and you see it in 1 Timothy. You'll see it again when we get into Titus. He is consumed with the authority of Scripture. 
You don't show partiality. It's not up to you. There's a plumb line that determines everything else. There is an all-encompassing truth that drives everything. That is the foundation on which our entire ministry operates. It's the scriptures. Because I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus. That's pretty serious. And then he explains just how important this Christ Jesus guy is. Of course, Timothy knows, but Paul is calling up some very solemn words, who is to judge the living and the dead. Paul says, what I'm about to ask you to do, I'm doing so in the presence of the one who gets to make the call for all eternity, for all creation, for anything in existence. This man, this God-man, gets to say right or wrong, good or bad, sinner or saint, Okay, Timothy, you should listen. And when he calls Christ the judge, that calls to mind John 5. Um, you can go and read it. Actually, I, would, I do want to read that. I do want to read that because in John 5, we see something uh, pretty wild about Jesus. He is, his authority is being questioned. And this is just before um, he gives one of my favorite sections is the back half of John 5 where they ask him to prove who he is. And, uh, and, John, or, and, and uh, John the Apostle records Jesus saying, um, in effect, in Judaism you need two witnesses to establish a fact. That's, all, that's what you need. You need two people to testify to the same event. And if you can do that, then that information is admissible in court. And I love how Jesus says, if you need two, I'll give you five. Let me tell you who testifies who I am. If you want to question my identity, John the Baptist says that I am who I am. My works say that I am who I am. God the Father says I am who I am. We've already exceeded the, the necessary two. Just to keep going, the scriptures say that I am who I am. And if you need one more, why don't you go dig up Moses and ask him? Because if he were here, he'd bow down and worship me. That's what Jesus says in John 5. I love this chapter. Right before that, the reason he even has to establish his identity is because of this audacious claim. This is verse 19 of John 5. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord. You're going to see this incredible interplay between the father and son. But only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. Astounding claims so far. Verse 22. The Father judges no one. A strange statement for the owner of the universe. The father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the son that all may honor the son just as they honor the father. Now, everywhere you see an authority um, statement made in 2 Timothy 4, do not forget that Paul is writing this beaten and bruised from a jail cell, sitting under a human authority about to give his life up to a human authority, and he just can't stop talking about how sovereign God is. Jim pointed this out last week. I don't know how many of us 
would be able to make that jump beyond our circumstances and to continue to insist that there is a great sovereign and Caesar is nearby commanding his executioners to start sharpening the axe. And Paul doesn't care. Continues to talk about the one true judge. I charge you in the presence of God in Christ Jesus who is to judge the living and the dead. Paul's authority is rooted in the sovereignty of the one that he represents, not the one that has him in chains. So he's charged him in the presence of God in Christ Jesus and he adds a second thing, and by his appearing. And by his appearing, and, and here in a little bit, we'll talk a, a bit more about what does that appearing mean? I want to put that on the back burner for just a second. But there are at least two options as to what that means. But it, I, in, in either case, it's a big deal. In the presence of God in Christ Jesus, and by his appearing, and his kingdom. Paul has laid out every firm foundation he can to now make the charge to Timothy. My dying wish to you, Timothy, my son, my son in the faith, my ministry partner, the one who's never abandoned me, the one who in Philippians I talk about that I cannot do without him. He says, verse two, preach the word. Isn't that so simple? (laughs) It doesn't say like, Go get money and bail me out. He doesn't say, come to me, I want to see you. I mean, he does say that later on, but that's not his biggest concern here. By the presence of God in Christ Jesus and by his appearing and by the very kingdom of the king of the universe, preach the word. I wish that, like, I wish that I thought like that more often. Beaten and bruised, in chains, the end is near. I just want to hear the gospel be preached. That's your job, Timothy. In 1 Corinthians 9.16, Paul says, woe to me if I don't preach the word. Paul says, you don't have to pay me. I have every right to ask you to pay me, but I won't. I just want to preach. So that's his first instruction. He's got five to Timothy. He says, preach the word. How? Second instruction. Be ready. In season and out of season. Um, he says, don't wait for Sundays. Don't wait for the Lord's Day. Don't wait for the revival or church camp. He said, this is, just, this is something we do nonstop. A great illustration that I saw in a commentary was, um, you cannot ask an emergency room doctor to turn off his skill set. He's always kind of ready. There are official times where he's on the clock. And then the rest of the time, he may not be on the clock, but he's ready. If I collapse, I, I know there are several men and women in this room that will be up here to do something about it, though they're not on the clock. He says, you're always ready to preach the word, in season and out of season, which also tells us that when it's popular and when it's not. Uh, I'm totally convinced that um, over the duration of my lifetime, could die tomorrow, at best I may have 60, 70 years left, who knows. But over the duration of my lifetime, like what I've devoted my life to is going to become decreasingly popular. People are going to fall more and more out of love. I mean, it's, 
I think in the last decade, it's been astounding at how much the popularity of the gospel has fallen out of favor. And, and I don't think that the church suffers as a result. I think this church trims up and a lot of the chaff is blown away and the wheat stands firm, okay? So I'm not worried about the church. Um, but I do think that the popularity of the gospel will continue to decline before it rises. And Paul's instruction to this church planter in a difficult place like Ephesus is, preach, be ready, when they like it and when they don't. Now this doesn't mean, I, I, I don't believe that this means that we are the drippy faucet. I don't believe this means that we just continue to preach even when people don't want to hear it. I, I, a good question to ask ourselves is, is silence ever appropriate? Because he'll go on to say, um, it looks like reproof. It looks like a strong rebuke, and it looks like exhortation. And there are times when I think what you need is for me to actually let you sit in your stupidity for a while. Sometimes it's in the face of preaching that heels dig in. And sometimes it's when, um, a lot like when God says, if you will not bend your knee to my will, I'll just let you have it your way and see how you like it. There are times when um, I've said my part. I have very close people in my life that have no interest in the gospel and haven't for a long time. And we are now in a period in our relationship where um, my silence is in many ways more effective. If, if nothing else, they wonder what I'm doing. If nothing else, it actually, me withdrawing in certain relationships forces a little bit of thinking on the other side at times. Now, I'm always ready to come back. Be ready in season, out of season, when it's popular, when it's not. And he gives these three ideas, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. I don't know about you guys, but I've always kind of, um, in my head, reproof and rebuking were synonymous. I've always had a hard time separating those. So I went in and kind of studied up on them as much as I could. Turn with me to John 8. John 8. If I can't go to Isaiah, you'll find me in John. That's just what I do. Uh, John 8. This is the same word. Um, Jesus is having a shocker, another spat with the Pharisees. Um, they believe that Abraham is their father. Jesus doesn't quite think so. And... Um, Jump down to verse 45. Much like the situation in Ephesus for Timothy, Jesus says to them, because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. It's amazing how many people aren't interested in the truth. And he says, which of you convicts me of sin? If I tell you the truth, why do you not believe me? The word for convict is reprove. 
Reprove is to, um, is to convince, is to challenge in such a way that you are, that you, you're forced to think differently. It's to, to bring conviction on people. I don't think that guilt is altogether wrong. I think guilt is an entirely biblical idea because after all, the entire human race stands guilty before a certain judge as we have in our text today. So guilt can be really helpful actually to, to convict. Not to manipulate, but to convict. And then he follows that with rebuke, which is to, to challenge, to demand a change. I really enjoyed how it's put in the book of Job. This is, this is quite a fascinating rebuke. Job 26, 11. This is talking about God's majesty. It says, the pillars of heaven tremble and are astounded at his rebuke. By his power, he stilled the sea. By his understanding, he shattered Rahab. There is, um, there is a force to a good rebuke that moves someone in the appropriate direction. So Paul says, it's your job to convict someone of sin. And after doing so, their heart should be softened such that when you rebuke, they move in the proper direction. It's to insist that you change, which can't be that bad because that's really the big idea behind the word repent. It's to demand a change, to force a change. In Job 26, it happens between God and this, this very interesting play. But go to Matthew 18. This is the charge of the church. And don't forget that Timothy is, an, is a leader at the, uh, at the Ephesian church. And he is to appoint elders and he is to train people up. Now Matthew 18 is one fascinating chapter. Um, it, it's got several sections in it, but really it's one gigantic section. Matthew 18 is about how to deal with sin in the community. It's, it's a very interesting idea here because it's, we want to say that we're just like sinners because we're saints with problems. And Matthew 18 has a real problem with that idea because it says, no, we deal with sin in the church. We get rid of it. We challenge those who struggle with it and we insist that they change. We rebuke them. We convict point out the sin, I go in private to discuss sin. If necessary, it escalates, but it's all about purging the, the community of sin. And if you look at verse 15 of chapter 18, it says it quite clearly, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one. or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. That's the process of establishing evidence such that conviction comes on the heart. And with, with people that love you, you move them in the right direction. Now, you don't just do that because now you run the risk of crushing someone. And so Paul finishes his list. He said, you will reprove them, you will rebuke them, and then you'll exhort. You'll encourage them. You'll build them up. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. 
I love this. This is a, this is a quote from a theologian named Thomas Oden. He actually lives in Oklahoma City. Um, he's kind of done writing, has been for a while, but he, I love how he strung these together. He says, good counsel involves simultaneously convic- convincing the intellect, rebuking the disordered passions, and encouraging the will. We convince, we rebuke, and we encourage. If we were to, to just convince without a challenge to, to, to change, then uh, that's just some sort of intellectual game. I don't like just the abstract for the abstract's sake. I don't like playing in the realm of ideas if the rubber never meets the road. We have to rebuke if we're going to convince someone of something. And if you do so without encouragement, you, you run the risk of breaking them. But I, prob- I would guess that the majority of us actually err on the side of encouraging without rebuking. A little bit of the, I don't want to sound too mean, so I'm just going to always say it's okay. In fact, I'll just say, we're all sinners. You don't really have to worry about it because actually, you know, I struggle with that too. It's amazing how often I struggle with that too ends up being the end of the conversation and we all become a little more okay with our sin And that should drive us nuts. Paul would say, that's a great opportunity to just use Matthew 18, actually. We'll take care of both of you. We now have two people to rebuke. I think we need all three. We need to to win your mind to the idea that there is a better way, a Christ-like way. Then I need to insist that you change, and then I need to, to, to embrace you and to encourage you. And this is how it's done, with complete patience. Don't forget last week in chapter three, verse 11, it says, um, let's do verse 10. He says, you followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness. Paul lists out these these, uh, attitudes that he's demonstrated. And then look at verse 11. My persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. And Jim went to great lengths to point out that that's a bizarre idea because Paul's rescue usually looked like getting thrown out or getting stoned or getting beaten. And I think here in chapter 4, verse 2, He's saying to Timothy, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience. He says, this isn't going to go well all the time. You're going to encounter difficult churches. Some people are going to kick, but do it with patience. And and This is Paul's model. Um, Suffer as I've suffered. I mean, if you look at Philippians, and, you know, I suffered because, you know, it's kind of no big deal if you look at what Christ did. So as Christ suffered, I suffered, and as I suffer, you suffer, Timothy. And then, oh, look at Epaphroditus. Look at all these great examples. He says, look at me and do so with complete patience and teaching, which would be the sacred writings from chapter 3, verses 15 and 16. He's reminding Timothy of this this wonderful um, inheritance he has from his family. He says, remember how from your childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings that would have been the Old Testament for him. which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, rebuke, and exhortation 
because we can do that with complete patience and teaching from these sacred writings. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. It's like Paul keeps repeating himself. Second Timothy is not original. He's tying a band around all these things that he's already done and said to the churches. And all this results in the man of God being complete and equipped for every good work. It results in the man of God being able to live like a saint and not always have to throw up the, oh, I'm such a sinner card. I'm the worst of all of us. I think Paul would get so sick of that language. Why is this um, a necessary skill for Timothy? He says, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. You guys know people who just cannot stand to be told the truth? Especially if it means that they'll have to change in some way. People love to be affirmed. Um, most um, struggle with being challenged. And I'd rather just put my fingers in my ears and be wrong and pretend like I'm not than be forced to change. He says, the time is coming. And I think Timothy would kind of say, Paul, it's kind of already here. When people will not endure sound teaching. Again, back to chapter 3, verse 16. And you can see there are a number of places in the pastoral epistles, First and Second Timothy and Titus, where sound teaching is a strong idea. But having itching ears, there's your Isaiah reference. I won't go read it. That's just for you. You're welcome. They're having itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. People love to confirm their own illusions. Let me stay in my mess. Have you ever um, had someone accuse you of ruining something for them? I've never understood that concept. I, I've always just said, like, you, you mean you didn't want to know the truth? And you can say I'm wrong, and if I'm wrong, then I haven't ruined it for you. What you mean is that you liked what you thought, you liked what you believed, and you're, you're upset that I said you're wrong. That's what you mean by you ruined it for me. I just kind of, I'll send you a, your welcome card, I suppose. Hopefully you'll send me a thank you note. It's amazing how, and sometimes we don't even think before we say things like that. Um, I was in a Bible study, probably it's been over a year ago now, but uh, we were dealing with some challenging subjects, and uh, one particular woman told me that because I was kind of being unapologetically, this is what it says, I don't know what we do with it, but this is what it says, um, she said that, like, I took away her innocence with the scriptures. I said, what do you mean? She said, well, you're like, you're unsettling me in certain areas. And I, and I assured her my goal was not to un, undermine her faith and unsettle her faith. But I have no idea what value there is believing falsehood and pretending like that board isn't eventually going to give way and you're going to fall through. I have no idea where value is in that. But Paul assures Timothy, some people will insist that you feed their delusions. And they will not endure sound teaching. They will not endure you opening up the scrolls of the book of Psalms and preaching truth. Paul is obviously speaking from experience. They'll run you out of town. Stone you, beat you. 
Who knows, Timothy, maybe you'll be on the chopping block like me someday. So a refusal to endure sound teaching, you can kind of follow the arrows, will result in having itching ears and the need to accumulate people around you. Yes, men. People that will tell you what you want. The, the, those with the silver tongue that can just really delight you with the things they have to say, whether or not they're true. Accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. There's four. And will turn away from listening to the truth. If you don't like sound teaching, you will find places where you don't have to suffer it. And once you've done suffering sound teaching, eventually it says you'll turn away. It's almost as if Paul believes doctrine's a big deal. And when you turn away from listening to the truth, that ends up with one wandering off into myths. And I just kind of labeled that in terms of the modern phenomenon of being obsessed with new. This insatiable hunger for the novel idea. There was a great bookstore in Tulsa when I was growing up. It's no longer there. But a novel idea is what everybody wants. This is why Rob Bell, Jim mentioned this last week. This is why Rob Bell can write a book called Love Wins. And uh, it becomes a bestseller immediately. And it does so much damage in the church. It will affirm what those who already agree with him want to believe. And then those who don't think that way yet are now struggling, wondering if they should. I can't tell you. I I bet you I had conversations with maybe as many as 10 people that that book or simply the idea of it coming from someone as prominent and has apparently orthodox as Rob Bell completely shook them up. And they were altogether uncomfortable with the idea that God would ever send anyone to hell. It was amazing how much damage control was now um, at the feet of those who were going to have to deal with this thing. But there was a market for it. There's a new idea. Actually, there's a really old idea that was all of a sudden thrown out into the public sphere in more of a popular level language. What Rob Bell, he thinks he's relatively kind of got this new insight. It's just enlightenment Europe bottled up for the masses. It tastes pretty good. Seems less offensive. After all, we're all sinners. There's no difference between us. See how this can really mess you up? But everybody wanted that novel idea and and whenever I read how this kind of this chain reaction happens I don't like sound teaching Um, the uh, the doctrine of hell bothers me the um, traditional orthodox perspective on sexuality in the church bothers me I wonder if I should listen to someone who's going to say some things along the lines that I enjoy Eventually it says that when you don't like the sound teaching, you will find those who will teach otherwise and eventually you'll walk away and eventually you're just clinging to every new idea. It's, it's amazing how often those new ideas that got you away from the church tradition, they satisfy for about five minutes, maybe a year. So you need something new. But it's, 
It's also interesting because I, I, I hope that we wouldn't. But it scares me to think, would Sunnybrook ever fall for this? Would we ever tell Jim to pack his bags because he's just sounding so old-fashioned and traditional? Now, I know the eldership here, and you're going to have to kill every one of them before that happens. So I, I, don't, I don't think that's going to go over. Um, but that doesn't mean that our hearts aren't susceptible to moving that direction. We're about to finish up Matthew. Um, this sermon series is going to be done in June. July, July. So we'll have, it'll have taken us about a year and a half, but I think that's relatively brisk for 28 chapters. Um, and then we start the gospel of the kings and prophets. Now, I don't know how many of you remember, but we actually started out with the gospel of the patriarchs. Adam, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. And then we did the gospel of the law and the land. So we were looking for gospel themes in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Um, we did go to Joshua, one sermon. We're going to start this fall with the gospel of the kings and the prophets, which means we're biting off the biggest chunk of scripture. We haven't even planned out all the sermons in the series yet. We just know this is the next step. If we're going through the Bible and we're finding God's redemptive plans in all of it, this is the next step. So we're going to be opening up 1 Samuel, and we will end at Malachi. Okay? Buckle up. We'll probably skip Psalms, although a lot of those are David, so we'll have to deal with them. At some point, nobody in here, because you guys are Wednesday night people, but at some point, a Sunday morning person is going to say, I'm kind of tired of the gospel business. And is our response to them to ever say, well, just hang on, because we've got a parenting series right around the corner. I know um, the preaching team, I know the staff, and I know the elders, and I think that in one voice we will say, if you're tired of the gospel, you're going to hate it around here. But um, as Jim quotes Mark Scott, who preached on Sunday, it would be better for you to leave than for us to change. But I can see this tendency in many of our hearts to to grow tired of the tradition, to grow tired of having to defend the idea of hell, to grow tired of being known as the, one of the last churches. You know, it's not yet, but in 50 years, we're going to be one of the last churches that's refusing to budge from the orthodox perspective on sin and sexuality. And will we choose to tickle ears or will we stand firm? Hope we don't ever find ourselves wandering off into myths. But it is amazing how often the demand will produce the supply. Rob Bell doesn't happen 100 years ago. He doesn't have a market for it. There's a very interested market in that business today. Undermining Christianity, having a new perspective on it. Like I could take one heresy and become an overnight bestseller in the Christian world. <laughs> if I'm just gonna try to defend that this heresy is a really good idea. One good way to get some notoriety from publishing houses is to go against traditional Christianity because there's a market for it. 
but I hope at Sunnybrook there's never enough demand to create the supply. He goes on in verse five, as for you, or however, or but, unlike those who cannot endure sound teaching, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist and fulfill your ministry. The sobriety isn't, um, isn't Timothy's um, affinity for alcohol. I mean, Paul actually had to tell him, you should have a little wine for your stomach problems. You know, we live in the ancient world, no water's really clean, have a little wine. Um, so that's not Timothy's problem. It's a, it's a sober way of thinking. Peter says in 1 Peter 5, um, be careful because Satan prowls around like a lion looking for something to devour. And those who aren't alert are quite susceptible. Endure suffering. Go back to chapter 3, verse 12. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. He doesn't say that you should look for persecution. He just says it's kind of natural that it comes after a while. And uh, if Paul the Apostle says you should endure suffering, you can't say, well, big talk. You say, okay, like you would know. Do the work of an evangelist. Ephesians 4, 11 tells us that this is actually an office that some hold, but um, Matthew 28 tells us it's a duty of everyone who follows Jesus. So um, you might be unusually gifted as an evangelist. I actually do know some people that kind of this is their bent. Um, they, they, they don't even need to know your name before they're ready to preach the gospel. Um, I'm kind of more, um, I have a, a bit of a longer process myself, but Matthew 28, the Great Commission, means that I'm not exempt because it's not, I don't have some unusual gifting as either a prophet or an evangelist. I still have to do it. Timothy, perhaps as much as anyone because he's a, he's a church planner, and he says, fulfill your ministry, similar to an instruction that's given to another man in Colossians 4. And I love how one particular writer said it. He said, it's almost as if Paul is saying, you need to do the hard work to plant the church. And then, believe me, it's like a garden. There's going to be constant weeds that need to be pulled, and you got to deal with all these things. And, and this writer said, um, once planted, churches need watered. Which is why we won't, we'll never apologize for having another series on the gospel. Show me uh, one of your flower beds that you watered once five years ago and then like it's still healthy. You haven't watered it since then? You know, I know we've had a rainy year, but it's almost like there's some constant tending that needs to be done. And then Paul switches into my favorite paragraph in the whole letter. Up in verse five, he says, as for you, he's comparing Timothy to these, these foolish people who won't endure sound teaching. And then in, in verse six, he says, for I am read already, or in other words, as for me, I am already being poured out as a drink offering. And the time of my departure has come. Um, drink offerings, you have a couple of examples there where you can go find um, either instructions or descriptions of it happening in the Old Testament, but basically what would happen is you would take your drink offering and it would be consecrated and there would be all these rituals and rites, and then the very last thing you do with it, the very last thing you do with it 
is poured out around the altar. This is Paul's dying letter. He's saying, we're at the end of my sacrifice. Like, I'm about to be poured out. It's almost done for me. And he says it's, he's being poured out, which is, this is one of those just really subtle hints that Paul is already doing, enduring some pretty severe treatment, knowing what's coming. It's like he's already been tried and convicted and sentenced, and now he's just a plaything for soldiers who might want to mistreat a man on death row. He says, I'm already being poured out. A man that is, I mean, we don't have a whole lot of information, but you might be able to um, deduce that he is, he is suffering as he writes this. But his, his attitude is strange. He's being poured out as a drink offering. You'll recognize this particular passage. Romans 12. Paul says, a number of years earlier, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercy of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And he says, lest you call yourself a sinner, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Probably based on the same sacred writings he seems obsessed with into Timothy, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Paul doesn't have any new ideas here. He's already been telling people to live as a sacrifice, and he's telling Timothy now, it is my turn to finally pour out the cup. The time of my departure has come. Departure is a euphemism, an ancient euphemism for death. It's kind of like today we say someone's passed away or they're no longer with us. It's all this way of um, nicing up a bit of a grim subject. I don't think Paul actually uses it to avoid kind of the, the, uh, the dark side of death. I think he uses it because he doesn't really care about death. This is John Calvin on this particular passage. He says, the way Paul describes death here is worthy of notice because he beautifully lessens the excessive dread of death by pointing out its effect and its nature. How comes it that men are so greatly dismayed at any mention of death, but because they think that they perish utterly when they die? John Calvin says that uh, people dance around the subject of death because they are in many ways a little uncertain about what's going to happen in this process. It feels a little too final to them. This is what uh, Thomas Oden, who I quoted earlier, this is what he says on this particular passage. He says, Paul's living faith encourages others to face hazard and death as he did. He exhibited no fear of death in this letter, though he must have known that his approaching execution would be violent. The axeman would have his neck. Yet he viewed his departure as release and victory. Contrast this with compulsive death avoidance patterns in modernity, where we pay the mortician to make the corpse look as alive as possible. 
When we come near to death, we circumvent any awareness of it and deny it. There was in Paul no denial of death. Paul has no fear whatsoever because look at how he continues. He says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, there's that phrase again, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. I hope that his, um, his guards were nosy enough to read his mail before it made it out of prison. And I hope that they knew that he did not fear them in the slightest. And I'm sure if they didn't read it, Paul was no wuss. He would have just told them. I have fought the good fight. These are three examples of perfect tense verbs, which we don't, really don't have an equivalent in the English language. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race, and I have kept the faith. These, uh, I kind of wrote out the side, the um, action of a perfect tense verb in the Greek language is both in, simultaneously in progress. It's currently happening. It is culminating. It's coming to its crescendo and it is complete. That's the perfect tense verb. Paul says, I have fought the good fight, perfectly so, and I'm done. I have finished the race, ran as hard as I could, and I'm done. And I've kept the faith as best I can, and now I'm done. Henceforth, or therefore, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness. In 2 Timothy 2.5, you see him encourage um, his young friend, Timothy. He says, an athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. He says, you've got to run hard and you've got to play by the rules. And at the very end of the letter, he says, and I've, I've received my crown. Paul could have called it a crown of glory, could have called it a crown of achievement or a crown of blessing, but he called it a crown of righteousness. Almost like he didn't think that this was him. Holy people are righteous. And Paul said, that's what I've earned, that's what I'll be given and to say I've earned it is interesting because it was given to me in God's grace, but by his grace he gave me the ability to stand firm and thus to earn it. You see how this idea that um, works-based righteousness is, is like what the Bible is, what the gospel is responding to in the scriptures, just weird. Because Paul fought a good fight and he ran a good race and he kept the faith by God's grace. And because he did so, by God's grace, he receives a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, that righteous judge, the one who judges the living and the dead, will award to him. And I would uh, do you a great disservice if I didn't pause to read Philippians 2 alongside of this, at least a small section of it. Philippians 2, verse 14, says this. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, 
that you may be blameless and innocent, like a saint. Children of God, without blemish, spotless, holy people, like saints. In the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, sinners, what we call them, among whom you shine as lights in the world. It's not like you look like each other. You shine as a light. Holding fast to the word of life, the sacred writings from 2 Timothy, so that in the day of Christ I may be poured out, that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering. 2 Timothy has nothing new. Upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. He was ready when he wrote the book of Philippians to die. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. says that righteous judge will award him that crown on that day and not only to me but also to all who have loved his appearing and there is the debate does that mean his future appearance or did it mean the ones who loved Jesus when he first appeared and I think the safest answer I can give you is a bit of both I don't know how you get to stand in any sort of favor before God at the end when he returns if you didn't really love him because of his first coming but this this whole paragraph And in many ways, the whole book is one long and drawn-out example of be imitators of me as I imitate Christ, which is Paul's famous line from 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1. Follow me as I follow Christ. He tells Timothy, it's your turn to defend the faith. It's your turn to deal with evildoers. It's your turn to remain firm and steadfast with the scriptures. And um, it's my turn to die. I'll, I'll leave you with just a quick reading from Revelation. Actually, the last couple of chapters of Revelation, I'm gonna hop around. But this is where we see God as that judge. In Revelation 20, verses 11 through 15, he is described as the judge on the throne. John the Apostle says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened, which is the book of life. And then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were with them. And they were judged, each one of them. It goes on and on. Jump down to chapter 21, verse 7. The one who conquers, in contrast to the dead, the one who conquers will have this heritage. And I will be his God and he will be my son. Jump down to chapter or to verse 22. John says, I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life, which is exactly why Paul has no concern about death. 
Jump down to 22.7. Behold, I'm coming soon. Jesus says, blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. No wonder Paul's so obsessed with the sacred writings. Verse 14, blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by its gates. It's like the Garden of Eden's being remade. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood, everyone who chases after those myths, who don't endure sound teaching. Verse 17, the spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come, and let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. If all that's true, Paul has no fear of death. I hope that I can be as excited about dying as Paul. Three big things let you go. Three big things that, that we learn from this passage is that Scripture defines all truth. Scripture defines all truth. Two, comfort is not the highest good. It isn't. Paul calls for endurance and suffering. Comfort isn't in and of itself bad. It's just not the highest good. And then three, death is truly powerless to those who are numbered with the saints. So how do we live out now and not yet? How do we navigate the complexity of um, being sanctified and considered righteous in an unrighteous world? Paul says, build your life around the scriptures. And the second that you um, don't have a taste for them anymore, you should worry. Surround yourself with people that will continue to preach to you from them. And then we can all die well. Okay? All right. Um, you can pray in your hearts as you go out because I went three minutes over. So you'll have to go. Love you guys. We will see you on Sunday, and we'll deal with the most bizarre passage in Matthew chapter 24.